Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst on a single stock. And today we're talking with Joe Kovaleski on maybe one of the most durable businesses of all time, which is Moody's Corp. It's also, I believe, uh, Warren Buffett's second largest pure equity holding. Let me confirm that while you were talking. But, uh, but this episode was a lot of fun. Uh, we We go through different elements of the business model. There's more than meets the eye. Uh, and we talk about why it's it's so competitively advantaged and uh, why it's so hard to displace. He talks a lot about the important history and it's, it's just generally a lot of fun. Uh, I think we see eye to eye with Joe and a lot of his investing philosophy and, and stick around towards the end too, because we talk more about lessons that you can draw as kind of a young investor that's trying to not only, uh, you know, grow in this, but actually maximize returns uh, over the long term. Did you have any highlights? Yeah, and one, uh, it is Buffett's eighth largest position, which still pretty large, uh, really. 2% of the portfolio, but they own a large chunk over at Berkshire Hathaway. Okay. And they've owned it. The first core owned, if whale wisdom can be trusted, is 2001. So they're long-term shareholders. But Highlights from the interview. Yeah, we talked about the moat. We talked about the pricing power. We talked about the expansion into some other things. And we talked about why they've been so durable and the government regulation plus brand and how that makes them so solidified as an oligopoly with S&P uh, and Fitch. Let's talk about our sponsors for the show, though. Seven Investing, they are presenting sponsor and our friends. And they have seven recommendations, seven stock recommendations every month. We should say because this will be coming out, I believe, December 22nd. So you might be listening to this at a later date. Our code, money, it's $100 off the annual, expires on January 1, 2023. So you've only got a limited time to use it if you want to. Do you want to talk about what uh, what people would get with 7investing? Yeah. So with 7investing, it's in the name. You get seven stock recommendations each month. And it's not just a recommendation. It is also good research. There's a lot of fact-based stuff. Even if out of the seven stocks they pick, you don't end up buying any of them. It's great to learn. They have some good information. They do a ton of research for that. On top of that, they do analyst calls on each of their uh, picks where all the advisors get together, talk, debate the pick. Uh, so if you want to go more in depth, you get that. They get Best Buy Now portfolio. Oh, that might not be the exact name, but they do. Uh, you know, Best Buy's Now. I think, yeah, I think that's the name where they rate some stuff strong buy or you know hold versus their existing portfolio of 200 different research reports. On top of that, they have analysis articles, podcasts, tons of information, and they're very, very accessible. If you want to actually talk with the advisors live, it's it's extremely easy if you sign up for the service. So use code money, get $100 off your annual subscription for life. Great thing to do to start during this bear market as we go into 2023 and beyond. And I believe it's on these episodes where the uh, we, we have the interview with the, the founder, Simon Erickson, at the end, if you want to stick around and listen to that for uh, more in, information on the business. But rem remember, code is money uh, at checkout. And without further ado, here's our interview with Joe Kovaleski. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. 
Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. Today we are joined by now two-time guest. He's been on before, uh, Joe Kowaleski. I, I hope I'm saying the name right. Um, he writes his own Substack. It's called Investing with Joe, and then .substack.com. But I believe it's all free too, right? At least at the moment. Don't yes. don't want to make any false promises. Yeah. Right? Yes, uh, all good. And that is, we we're talking about Moody's, but he, he recently had a write-up on there. So if you want to pair pair this audio recording with his his write-up, feel free. Um, but Joe, that this is your first time on the show on your own. Um, maybe give some background on, I guess, your investing career for for people that are maybe in the same shoes as you. What? How'd you get into this to begin with? Yeah, so I, I started in college writing for Seeking Alpha. I just, you know, probably like a lot of your guests, just had a love for investing, and I started there. And I, I met my previous boss on there, and I worked for. Um, we were we were in the retail investment management space, so we had a, a small ETF. And uh, it was pretty, you know, it was pretty, we could go wherever. We weren't, you know, tied to one theme. It was just find the best high quality businesses. So I, I did that for three years and learned a lot. And uh, hopefully I'll share a little bit today about, you know, one particular business I learned a lot about. Okay. And it, the, that company is Moody's. I'm guessing that's one that a lot of investors are familiar with. But um, how do you, or do you remember when you first came across it as an investment? Yeah, so when I when I first started following it closely, actually, um, I'm I'm a huge fan of Dev Cantasara and uh, Valley Forge Capital Management. Do you guys okay. know? You're familiar with them? Yep. yep. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. His his style to me is very pure. It's it's very you know what I think every long only you know sort of red intelligent investor you know person kind of wants to kind of wants to be. So he he is a very you know concentrated portfolio. He's only got about nine or ten stocks. So I try to you know stay up on everything that he's doing. He's only thirteen F. I really care to read, even though things don't really change a lot from quarter to quarter. But uh, Moody's was a big position of his. I kind of followed everything, and uh, with the investing with Joe Substack, I kind of wanted to start with something that was really really concise and sort of just the the highest quality business possible. And uh, Moody's was definitely at the top of the list at the time. All right. And this is a very old business. I think it's important to provide some history of where it got to where it is today and why is it the industry standard for, I don't want to spoil it, the, the business segments that they're in. Yeah. So it's the, it's the sort of the gold standard because John Moody, the founder of Moody's, was the, the pioneer really of bond ratings and I think you can sort of think about Moody's in the early days, like a like the Sears catalog, uh, like the Moody's, you know, is sort of the place to go to get your information on stocks and bonds. And uh, so it was it was that was really a long time. It was the catalog. And, you know, Moody's was the first. And then about 20 years later, you had uh, standards and then you had pours. And, you know, and of course, those two merged. And now we're S&P Global. And then you had Fitch ratings. And by the time you got to the 1920s, uh, Moody's was really rating, you know, all sorts of everything, every every type of bond. And, uh, you know, Moody's is older than the SEC, but the two have really been sort of intertwined throughout their whole history. If you go back to when the uh, SEC was started in the 1930s, uh, banks were required to hold investment grade securities. And uh, it was it was looser then, but it was like, you know, investment grade based on these manuals. And of course, there was only a handful of manuals, which were Moody's and S&P and Fitch. And then by the time you got to the 1970s, 
uh, became a little more, um, a little more ingrained. Uh, Moody's got the title. It's a nationally recognized statistical rating organization. And um, the first sort of really um, serious requirement was broker dealers had to be, you know, their capital requirements were based on ratings by, you know, one of these three businesses. So really for the history of Moody's, it's kind of been written into, you know, U.S. regulation. And really since the 1970s, the, the ratings business hasn't changed. I mean, pre then, like I said, it was a catalog beforehand. And then, you know, the 70s is when it started charging issuers because they had, you know, sort of problem, you know, if you have a manual and it's just out there, you know, everybody can, can copy it or whatever and send it all around. So Moody's figured out, hey, you know, our people are getting our stuff for free. So we're going to charge the actual issuers that are, you know, issuing debt to, uh, you know, instead of, instead of the old model. Do you, there was a, you had a really cool quote in your Moody's write-up. Do you want to share that? Yeah, that's, let me see, Thomas Friedman. Uh, essentially, he compared, you know, Moody's in the U.S. to the, the two superpowers. And, uh, you know, it's even, uh, you know, like credit score, personal credit scores. Credit's really everything for a business. I mean, you probably see that now with, I don't know, the cryptocurrency exchanges came to mind, right? Like they have no credit. Nobody wants to bail them out because they're worthless, right? Like your, your credit is everything. So if you figure, you know, companies getting downgraded their bonds, it's really destructive of them they have to pay higher interest rates. And so, yeah, it's, it's really neat to think of Moody's in that regard. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about the different operating segments. Um, Cause it, it's, it's most known, I think for the, the credit ratings component, but there's some other uh, elements to the business as well. Why don't you talk about each of those and then maybe the economics of each also? Yeah. So like I said, ratings is, ratings is the main business. Uh, it's about 60%. The rate it's, you know, been hitting hard lately by, you know, macro stuff, but in general, it's about 60% of the business. Um, it's more transaction based. So issuers, you know, your company or your municipality or your financial institution and your issuing debt and Moody's will charge you per, you know, per issuance. And then the 40% of the business is Moody's analytics. And they stopped breaking that out for uh, the, the quick on the rating segment. They kind of break that out a little bit more. They, you know, they break out each sort of um, segment they go. The analytics business, they used to break it out between, I think it was like enterprise risk management and uh, one other segment. Now it's just called Moody's analytics. And that's more of a, a SaaS, you know, base model. Uh, it's, it's definitely been more resilient. It's, you know, still growing in the downturn. Who's, who's kind of the typical customer for Moody's analytics? Um, it's mostly like financial institutions, uh, any sort of, any sort of debt buyer, any, you know, large, uh, mostly debt, but cause that's their, that's their proprietary data, right. Is, is right. the, you know, the bond. So that's, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Are those the only two? Yeah. Yeah. Two segments. And then if you look at like S and P global, that's sort of the difference between them. Their rating business is only 25%. And then they just had this big merger. So that's why I focused on Moody's a little bit more uh, because the, the ratings business is a little cleaner and that's, you know, 60% of their business. Whereas, you know, you look at S&P now, they did this big merger, it's only 25% of the business. Right. And w- I'm assuming the margins are high. I believe I've seen it thrown around. They have somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, 60% or so profit margins. Uh, 
And we all know that this business is extremely asset light, but what other costs? Is it mainly employees? Do they have to procure data? Uh, something along the lines where, where are all the costs coming from? Yeah, it's, it's mostly, it's very asset light, all mostly employees. Uh, I don't think Moody's gave an exact number. I know S&P on the last earnings call said 60% of their call space is uh, employees. And I'm assuming the rest is just infrastructure and you know data sourcing and that sort of thing. Gotcha. So the operating leverage on this, as probably people can see from the long-term charts of their margins, is quite strong. Let's talk about the remote, though. I think this is the most important thing uh, for a business like Moody's. How strong is the competitive advantage? And where does it come from? Yeah, like I said, it comes from all the, the the government regulation. I see that question comes up on Twitter all the time. I see people, oh, this, this business here, I think one of you guys might have been talking about it the other day, you know, what's the most Modi business there is? And, um, you know, even, even the big tech companies, there's nothing promising that, you know, Apple's going to exist in 100 years or, or Google's going to exist or Amazon or any of them. Whereas when you have sort of a company that's written into to government law, and then, you know, Moody's had, you know, pretty disastrous 2008 scenario where, you know, their models were just completely wrong on, on you know, everything housing related. And so, you know, you, you go through that and you think, well, you know, something's going to happen here, right? Like there's going to be a, you know, opportunity for somebody else or this is going to cl- get cleaned up. And there was, a, there was some little things, I, I think, with their business. You can look, they, they have more employees now than they did then. So it's a little less efficient. So maybe there's some more compliance. But really, there was there was just no there was no effect from from you know a disaster situation for them, and you know a hundred years from now, you know a lot of things are going to change. You know, if you think about a hundred years ago when Moody's was founded, how different the world was, and you know you can see the technology we'd be doing using a hundred years from now are different. But I, I think the bond rating will, will largely be the same, and and uh, Moody's will, will be at the center of it. Has anyone tried to compete with them besides, we do know there's S&P and Fitch. Has, has there been anyone that's actually tried to compete and had any sort of success over, say, the last 50 years? No, there's, I mean, there's seven other, I believe, um, businesses that are classified as nationally uh, recognized statistical rating organizations. But yeah, you've, I think Morningstar might be one. That, that's probably the only one you've heard of. Uh, okay. The other ones, nothing, no, no traction. Uh, I think Moody's and S&P have about 90% market share. Gotcha. And has that stayed, you might not have the data in front of you, but has that market share been stable over the last however many years? Yeah, th- there were stats from, actually, I think it was, I mean, even higher. I think there were stats post great financial crisis. I think if you add Fitch in there, it was like 97%. And then they did the same study a couple of years ago when it was like still 97%. So yeah, they they've been really dominant. Um, I, I think they they do say S and P's a little bigger. If you look at like third party data stuff, they say S and P's a little bigger than Moody's. But if you just look at top line revenue, they're about the same size. So I mean, you're you're getting really the same business, you know, between Moody's and S and P ratings. So. And is it just the if if a company came to let's say the Ryan and Brett credit ratings agency to get their bonds rated? Is it just the fact that no one would buy them? And our reputation isn't out there for decades? Yeah, I mean, the first thing you'd have to go through is go through the government and somehow get you know, the, the proper classification so that your you know, ratings would mean anything. 
And then, yeah, I do think the second part of it is just the network effects, right? When you have it, when you have a think of it as a you know risk model, uh, the risk model is going to get stronger the more ratings that you do. So I'd imagine too that there's, and then there's of course some of the stuff that you know people just keep using it, you know. But I, I think the the risk model part of it is is important, where it gets better over time, and the more companies you know that get rated, the more accurate it gets. How's the current rate regime impacting Moody's business? And then what sort of impact do you think it'll have on them moving forward? Yeah, it's, it's been rough. I mean, people, people sort of joke about, you know, everything being like a low interest rate trade and, you know, Moody's did benefit from, you know, low interest rates. I mean, when interest rates are low, there's more people in, in the debt market. So the way, the way that the business frames it is sort of, you know, you use debt to grow your business. You have a couple options. You can use cash, you can use equity, you can use debt. And uh, in the current environment, when rates are going up, you know, debt obviously becomes a lot less attractive. And you see sort of companies, you know, stop spending. So Moody says, you know, the two big things for them is either the rates start to come down, so costs come down to, to borrow, or the second thing is economic growth accelerates. And over the past year, you've seen the opposite happen, you know, where, you know, economic growth rates are slowing and then rates are rising. So at some point, though, I mean, if you're going to you're going to see growth accelerate and probably rates come down, too. So that's the point when you start to see, you know, the, the higher quality issuers come in. So your, your bigger companies um, and then sort of the, the smaller companies, the, the junk bonds are sort of last. Everybody kind of follows the, the higher the higher quality issuers. Have the municipalities or governments continued to issue at sort of a similar rate, or has that still come down too? That is a great question. I am not. I'm not too sure. Um, they, I feel that, like the infrastructure bill could help a bit. I know that's not going to be a huge driver yeah. for them, but it could help. You know, right? For that it's it's definitely it's definitely held up. Uh, on the last call, they did mention. You know what sort of will have the biggest rebound it did say corporate because corporate has slowed. I imagine the government business has been more resilient. I'm not too sure on, you know, uh, well, government, I mean, government's usually very inefficient, so I'm not too sure they're sitting and looking at the slowdown and being like, Oh, let's, you know, let's stop this for a while. I don't think there is, they don't have, they don't really have shareholders to answer to. I mean, they have the American public, but the American public just, you know, like you know spending and that's why politicians want to spend but i don't i imagine it's more yeah it's definitely more resilient okay so you talked about the cyclical part uh in your write-up but you mentioned that over the long term debt issuance has been a secular grower over say the last century plus Mm. this might be a dumb question for listeners that are more astute financially but why does debt issuance go up decade decade after decade and can you maybe playing devil's advocate, find any, is there any reason that would change? Yeah. So I guess uh, in simplest term, the best way to think about it is if you think about John Moody, you know, in 1900 and what, what sort of companies was he doing ratings for, right? Uh, Back then it was like the railroad boom, right? Like technology, the internet over the last 20 years is what the railroads were, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. So if you think about, you know, the size of those companies, I think U.S. Steel was the first billion dollar company. You know, that was, I don't know, maybe 100 years ago. And now we have uh, multiple companies that are trillions of dollars. So that's sort of, you know, just general economic growth. 
And, you know, even you can look at, you know, what were the top, I know there's always stats about the top 10 largest companies in the S&P 500, how they changed, you know, 30 years ago, they're completely different from now. And that's the good thing, you know, if you, you own a stock like Moody's, trying to find things that are really high level tailwinds. And so it doesn't really matter, you know, I mean, everybody, you know, if you guess now, everybody thinks Apple is going to be in the top, you know, 10 stocks or whatever, 30 years from now and Google and all those companies we talked about. But even if they aren't, you know, whoever the top 10 are, Moody's is going to be rating their debt. So this is, this is again, part of the, you know, owning hundred year businesses part of it. How do they price? I mean, I guess like what's their like pricing model? Is it just a flat fee? Is it a commission on the amounts or on how much debt is being issued? Yeah, it is. It is based on uh, debt issuance. I think their cheapest ones are a few thousand dollars, and then their biggest ones for you know big companies are, are millions of dollars. Uh, there was I have a quote in the or a you know piece in the Substack write up. There was an article somebody on Twitter posted from like the seventies, and uh, and there it was like their their take rate on debt issuance was you know one basis point. And I think now, uh, last year, they were up to like seven basis points too. So there's definitely, you know, you talk about the high level tailwinds you're getting from all this growth. And then you're, you know, you have a government regulated, you know, oligopoly call it that can kind of, you know, keep raising that take, you know, over, over time. Makes sense. What about, um, I guess the, the push into ESG, I know you, you had, we talked about this briefly before we started, but uh, what are your thoughts on, on their push into that? And then do you think, or do they have any uh, expansion plans into other business segments? Yeah. So they, they talked about on the last earnings call, it's tough. The analytic stuff is really tough to analyze because it's so sort of diverse. They have a, they have a ton of different products and like one product they have uh, most of this is, is acquisition one is like a climate risk model. So if you think about insurance companies, you know, they're always trying to analyze, well, like where's the flood zone at? Where's the wildfires happen at? And so they're, they're very acquisitive in this. And, you know, sometimes it can be better for Moody's to sort of be able to cross sell. So we'll, we'll see what happens with the ESG stuff. I think for now, it's sort of uh, a good cross sell opportunity. Like I said, they, they'll, they'll buy things, you know, so they, they sort of establish better relationships with certain customers. And then they have this kind of big suite, sort of your typical, uh, you know, mature software business type model. I'm not sure there's anything special with some of the ESG and, and risk modeling stuff. Okay. And you mentioned the price increases. I think one thing anyone worried about Moody's would possibly think that they've you know maybe increased prices too quickly because you mentioned the one basis point versus the seven today do you believe this can continue is there any reason they can't get to 10 12 basis points over say the next couple of decades no i don't think i think they can i mean you know going from one to seven in 50 years you know there there was a lot more relative growth there than there probably will be over you know the next 50 but I do think, you know, it's still a very, very small portion of, you know, of their, their total, you know, debt issuance. So, yeah, the, the 10 to 12, you know, 15 bips over decades, I don't think is far-fetched at all. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. What what do you think of management and uh, their capital allocation strategy so far? Yeah, so that's one part. Like I said, the, the, that's mostly the analytics. The ratings business is so good. It's been the same for 50 years, so it's hard to mess up. Um, they, if you listen to their conferences, uh, they, they emphasize a lot on the analytics side. It's really tough, and they do spend a lot of money. It's more than I would like to see. I just had a write-up today on Visa, and Visa is much more capital efficient, also very high margin business. But Moody's... Uh, it, it's something to pay attention to. You know, you don't want your your free cash flow being spent on junk. I mean, you see that, you know, a lot of companies now. I mean, Facebook comes to example, right? Like you're they're, they're out burning, you know. But I, I don't think Moody's. I mean, I don't think they'll ever get to that that sort of level. But you definitely you definitely want to be cautious and suspicious of acquisitions and, and try to pick up as many nuggets as you can and and follow it closely. But yeah, there's there's still a lot, you know, there's still a lot to learn there because there's a lot of different, you know, a lot of different products. Now, is their management team uh, have they had a lot of executive turnover, or has their current, you know, CEO whoever been there for a long time? Yeah, Rob Falber is the CEO. He's been there for about 20 years. He took over CEO. Yeah. I think he's only been CEO for two years or so, but it, it definitely seems uh, homegrown. It's not. It's. I think the, a business like Moody's isn't like you know. Uh, software business where it's more like, oh, you find a guy that did this industry really well before. It does seem to be very, you know, uh, executives working their way up. Okay. Now, oh, Brian, you have a follow on that? Do you think anyone could run this business? Is this like that? Oh, what, what do they call it? Ham, the ham sandwich. The, the ham, ham sandwich, sandwich business. Hey, this is one of his largest holdings, I think, or maybe top 10. So that yeah. could be, be honest something. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say. I mean, that's I know it's tongue in cheek, right? Not, not everybody can run it. I mean, it would be the the ratings business is. I mean, you could probably screw it up if you want to. I think <laughs> there's a lot of businesses, you know, like you could you could get on somebody's bad side, like at the SEC, and that that wouldn't be good. But I, you know, the people that they're hiring, you know, they're going to be pretty reasonable with it. I think it's you know, it's pretty hard to mess up. Right. The political stuff has to stay a bit nuanced. You got to be good at that stuff. Uh, let's talk yeah. the actual stock valuation. Uh, we're sitting here, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm looking at Coifin market or enterprise value is about $60 billion as of this recording. What needs to happen you know, for this to be a good investment? Uh, can they return to their historical margins? And I guess what sort of you know, earnings multiples are they, or earnings multiple are they trading at currently? Yeah, I, I think though, you know, you've seen margins compress. Like you talked about earlier, there's a lot of operating leverage in the business. So I think as the ratings comes back, I think their free cash flow margins are, you know, around 30% plus. 
And I, I think you'll see that again. It might take a little time for for the you know the issuance to come back. The stock where it's at now, um, I don't. It's not a you know it's not a pound the table buy. I would say it's it's a little bit expensive. Um, I, I'm looking for you know 25 times free cash flow, sort of the range where you think you know I think it's reasonable. It is cyclical. So that's kind of what the the hardest thing to value because you don't really know, you know, it, it's very durable. So it's going to get a, a durable multiple, you know. But then on the other hand, it's cyclical, so you don't know exactly how much cash you're receiving. Like this year, I mean, I think free cash flow they're supposed to do, you know, a billion to one point two billion. So now on that, if you you know, it's, it's cyclically depressed, of course. But I think it's trading at about forty five times. So I mean, that's a you know depressed multiple, but it's still a little bit expensive. Again, I, I think it's a hundred-year business, so it's one that there is a price that you definitely want to be buying at. And I, I think it's just you know you kind of have to sort of watch and be you know it's a little more tradery, right? Like you got to be a little more conscious of okay, let me buy a little bit and then you know sort of watch and see where things go. Is that is the fact that it hasn't fallen as much as the credit ratings? have is that sort of a testament to just investors knowing the resiliency of the business yeah i think that's definitely part of it and you know a lot of people will you know you look back at like some of the valuations during the great financial crisis and you know i mean i i can't imagine you know i think it was chuck ocre or, or somebody was buying you know these businesses then and it looked I, I imagine if we were to roll the clock back 15 years it looked pretty bleak for them I bet nobody was like, oh, they're going to be completely unscathed. You know, their margins are going to be 30% plus free cash flow, you know, 10 years from now. So, yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess this is an important question because it sounds like this is kind of unbreakable of a business. Like, well, that's the narrative, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, how would this uh, not succeed? How about how about two part question? How would an investment in Moody's go poorly? Let's say five, mm-hmm. ten years out from now, and then how would Moody's ever fail? So, I think the biggest negative, and you would have to be very bearish on the U.S. economy. I think you would say debt has peaked. So 2021 was peak global debt. You know, we're not going to have more issuance. You know, that is really the bear case for Moody's. Uh, but but again, that's you know, very very macro. Uh, and as far as you know, the company breaking, you know, maybe there's some other rating agency that can come up. I mean. There's there's a lot of startups out there that are kind of doing the same thing, you know, in, in tech. Like somebody, somebody should try, right? Why not? Why not go out and try to get your uh, NRSRO uh, license from the government and and see what happens. But other than that, I really it's it's really macro. I mean, in a situation like that where you see like global deleveraging, I mean, it's going to get you know the multiple is going to get a haircut. And you know, rating the, the business might have peaked, right? But I think you have to be so bearish that if you really believe that, like you shouldn't own any stocks. Like you should own, I don't know, right. you should go buy land or buy something or be short something, you know. So Moody's, I think over a hundred years is just 
I mean, a hundred years is a long time, but I think over, over the long run, you know, should just kind of squeak out better than the S and P 500. And I, I think that's all the goal for, I mean, personally, I mean, I've lost a lot of money. I think everybody's, you know, a lot of people have done terrible this year. And that's really the goal is just to get a little bit better return over decades. That's what Buffett did. I think that's the right way to do it. And I, I think Moody's, if that's what your goal is, is definitely a, a good opportunity to, to look into. Now, do you think, just a quick follow up there, do you think an advantage for Moody's is that the business and the industry is so boring? Yes. Yes. I mean, it never gets... That, that's part of the reason it never gets, you know, super expensive, right? Like when you get people that are really excited to own things, I don't think anybody's really excited to own Moody's. So that gives you, that gives you definitely better entry points. I think if you're, if you're thinking about, so, so even like I said, you know, looking at it right now, it does look expensive, but I don't think it's ever, you know, but super bubbly and crazy and that sort of thing. I think it's down with the NASDAQ this year. All right. Well, that interview went kind of quick. So uh, maybe, uh, Let's talk a little bit more about, uh, I guess, your investing. What I, I the, assume you own Moody's. What's the sub? Yeah, tell us about the Substack. What do you run over there too? Yeah. Uh, it goes along with that. Yeah. So today, I just I just posted one on Visa. Um, I'll, I'll back I'll backtrack. So I did Moody's first. The second one was Meta, Facebook. It was called the the journey from uh, Facebook to Meta. I really think that's a good title for it. I wanted to summarize, you know, where I look, my last place of work, that was our biggest position for most of it. And, you know, it's tough because when you say, oh, like Zuckerberg just, you know, blowing all this money on the metaverse and all, it's like, that's not what we, that's not why we bought it in the first reason. I mean, maybe there's some people that bought it like that, but really, you know, if, if you think about three years ago, Facebook was amazing, right? If you think about purchase, making, you know, buying anything on the internet, e-commerce is growing faster than you know, retail and, and you're looking for where's the best funnel to own. And at the time it was Facebook and they had the best ad targeting. And it's really amazing. I mean, I, I as an investor, I, you got to take responsibility for your mistakes and you want to be really honest with yourself. And, you know, you look back and of course there was like warning signs along the way with what Facebook was going to become. But in the beginning that the thesis changed so fast. And when, when you look back and it's like, oh, it's three years, it wasn't that fast. But when you're, when you're owning it and you're following it every day, it's, it was fast. It didn't seem like, it was like, oh, you trust management team, they're really responsible. And then you look back and you're like, wow, how fast, you know, they changed really fast. And now all of a sudden they were doing a buyback program and they spent $50 billion buying the stock, you know, $300 and now it's at $100. And it's like, how did that happen? And some of it is to the environment. I mean, I always think about, you know, people are buying pictures of rocks for a million dollars and, you know, I own some expensive stocks. I'm like, oh, I'm not the idiot that's buying the rock pictures. I'm fine. You know, my stocks are a little bit expensive. <laughs> you know, if they go down 25%, like whatever, you know what I mean? But then you look and you look at Facebook and it's like, well, the, the management team also bought into the bubble. So then they started investing your money where you didn't really want your money. And then all of a sudden your stock that you thought was a a good investment is now 70, 75% off the highs. And that's just been, it's, it's a really humbling experience. And, you know, I, I wish more people would share, you know, their, their, uh, failings failure, with investing. Yeah. because yeah, it is, it's, it's really, you know, you, you got to make mistakes. It's like anything. If you, if you want to be good at it, I mean, you know, you got to make mistakes. And that was one mistake that I made and, and, and learned from, and I wanted to 
so with the Substack, I kind of wanted to share, you know, that whole that whole journey, you know, of sort of understanding that and you know, hopefully, hopefully somebody can get some lessons out of it. I, I think a lot of <clears throat> Brett and I have talked about that ourselves too. Is I'm seeing a lot of that meme where it's that person with the champagne bottle and he's popping it on like the podium and then they zoom out and he's on whatever fifth place or he's the lowest there where like everyone's taking victory laps because more people have because other people have lost money but you know most most of us haven't won most of us are not shorting or in energy so yeah but that's a good uh, pitch investing with joe freeze we'll link in the show notes make sure to check it out I was going to say, if you could draw a lesson away from Meta specifically to apply to your investing philosophy moving forward, is there anything? I know it's kind of a one-off case, but... No, I mean, I honestly, like I mentioned in, in the beginning, the Valley Forge guys, it really is looking for something, businesses that are just like unstoppable. And I, the Valley Forge guys are pretty you know, conservative. And I mean, Moody's is like rock solid, but I think, you know, especially for younger investors that have another 40 years of their career left, I do think it's in looking for the businesses. I don't think you're going to find another Moody's or another Visa, but I do think there are businesses that are, have signs of being, having similar competitive positioning that can be around for a long time. Uh, Adyen is one, Adyen, Adyen. Uh, where it's like very low, lowest cost provider. So there might be a Substack write up on that coming out. But it, I do think there's there's ways to find businesses that are more you know growthy that have more growth left in them. I mean the Visa and the Moody's tailwinds are sort of understood. But I think it's taking that really base level of conservatism, which is kind of what I was going for with investing with Joe, is starting at the things that are the sure things. So Moody's, Visa, and then kind of venturing and seeing like, well, what are businesses that are you know a little bit you know, further up on their, their S curve that kind of have similar characteristics. So that's, that's sort of where I'm, where I'm aiming for. All right. Well, I think that's all the questions we have. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned the Substack, and, and we'll link to it. What are some other places that people could get a hold of you or, or keep up with your work? Yeah, primarily Twitter. Uh, my handle is investing W Joe. And then like you said, the Substack. So yeah, DMs are open and I'll feel free. I'm always happy to chat stocks with anybody. So, Perfect. All right. Well, that is going to do it. We want to remind listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Joe, again for coming on the show, and we will see you guys next time. Hey, Simon, we wanted to ask you a few questions about 7investing so listeners could get an idea of what they're getting. What inspired you to start the company and what exactly is 7investing? Well, hey, Ryan, thanks again for having me. You know, we from years of working in the investing industry, it was inspired by conversations with people that would just always have kind of the same negative perception of the stock market, right? It's it's too hard, or I don't have time for this, or this is stacked against me. And those conversations kind of led me to say, hey, we need to create a site that actually does inspire people to say, you can take control of your financial future. You can invest in stocks. You can find good stocks to buy and hold for long periods of time. 
And at the end of the day, too, we know that everybody is different. Um, we don't believe that there is one stock that fits for everyone, right? Maybe you're a, a dividend-loving, you know, paycheck-cashing uh, income investor that might want an option that's going to be a lower-risk dividend-paying stock, especially right now with the economy being what it is. Uh, and then other people might say, hey, you know, I'm ready to hold on for 20 or 30 years. I want to take some swings for the fences. Let's go after those high-growth opportunities. And so I, I said, you know, this would be something that would be even more fun rather than just doing it educational and, as, and by myself. I said, what if I brought together a team of seven advisors, all with a diverse background and a diverse perspective of the stock market? So we could uncover more stones and look at a bunch of different stocks with a bunch of different investing styles and a whole bunch of different industries. And so seven investing is, is kind of the uh, the genesis of all of those that we started in uh, in March of 2020. And we said, let's look at a whole bunch of different stocks. Let's do the legwork of the analysis and let's present our seven favorite actionable ideas every month for investors to choose from. And let's start the conversation about which of these stocks is right for you and which one might be the right fit for your portfolio, knowing that investing is a very personal thing. All right. If you are a subscriber of Seven Investing, what do you get? Can you give an overview of what subscribers get? On the very first of every month, Brett, we release our seven new recommendations. So we are uh, coming up on October 1st here, at least in the recording of this. And, you know, on October 1st, we'll release seven recommendation reports. Some of them will be low risk. Some of them will be high risk. Some of them will be biotech. Some of them will be financial services. We run the full gamut. And as a member, you get immediate access to all of the new reports. But you also get access to all of our old recommendations as well. We track all of them in real time on our scorecard at seveninvesting.com slash recommendations. And we also provide company updates on all of those previous recommendations as well. We check in on how things are going. And sometimes we even see red flags that we think people should be aware of. There's risks for any opportunity at the time that you recommend it. And sometimes it's really willing, it's really, it's really needed for investors to kind of understand the risk and reward relationship. And then the last part of it is in addition to issuing new recommendations and providing updates on them is we know that this is a long-term journey. We know that investing is something that we want to take uh, years, if not decades, to accomplish whatever we want to get to as, as the end goal. And so we always, every month, make it a point to be very available for our subscribers to ask us questions. We have a members-only call uh, right in the middle of every single month. We have a community discussion forum that we that we have available 24-7 to not only talk to our advisors, but also other investors. I think that's one of the key differentiators for 7investing is that, you know, we know this is a long-term journey. We know it's a very personal thing. We know they're going to have questions along the way. We don't want to just broadcast stock picks and disappear. We want to be here with you uh, throughout this entire journey. And you mentioned... So seven recommendations each month. Sometimes those might be repeats, but obviously there's a lot of companies now in the seven investing universe. So how do members get a grasp on the the advisor's conviction around certain ideas? Like which ones do do they are do they have a way of knowing which uh, whether advisors like certain ones more? That's the most common question we've gotten actually since we started is what's your favorite ideas right now? You know, we've done the diligence on almost 200 unique companies now and put them on the scorecard and people would say, hey, this is too much to keep up with. How do I even know where to start? And so we've kind of uh, evolved as, as a company. You know, one thing that we've started doing is best buys every month. Each advisor gets to pick any of their or another advisor's previous recommendations and put the flag on it that says, this is my best 
buy for October. And we publish those for subscribers. The other thing that we've started doing is issuing conviction ratings on companies that are also right there on the scorecard. So if you see a previous recommendation, we go everything from potential sell, which is the most negative flag we can put on a stock, to strong buy, which is the most positive bullish flag that we can mark things with. And you can filter through all of those to really quickly see here's some of our favorite opportunities. And we've taken this even one step further now, Ryan, which is we've created a strong buy portfolio where every quarter now we've gone ahead and self-selected as a team through a pretty methodical process, our 20 favorite ideas, our 20 highest scoring companies that we've collectively come up with, our favorites of the entire scorecard. And we put these into what we're calling a strong buy portfolio that we publish each quarter, also available as an added benefit for no extra charge for seven investing members. All right, last question here. What does it cost to become a seven investing subscriber? Uh, and as a, you know, we'll talk about, or we have talked about before, if you're a listener, use code money to get a hundred dollars off your annual subscription. That's right. Yeah. We do have a monthly option. You know, you can come in and check out the entire scorecard for a month just to see what you're looking at for $49 a month. Uh, but our most popular plan is actually the annual option because it's at a discount to that. Uh, in fact, we've got a discount on the discount, like you mentioned, Brett. Uh, $3.99 for the year is our is our annual option price. But if you use money, the Chit Chat Money promo code, it's down to $300. So you're basically getting the, the subscription for half price if you sign up for the annual offer with that promo code. That does not expire after the first year. As long as you remain an active subscriber, you get to lock in that $100 off a year benefit. All right. Well, as he mentioned, use that code MONEY. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thanks very much for having me.